Hello, everyone. Do we believe in miracles? Does God heal today? What a huge subject. And I thought I'd introduce this huge subject by coming clean (laughs) and laying my cards on the table. Uh, When he was about 30 years old, my husband started getting epileptic fits. And that went on for several years, and about six years later, it suddenly escalated, and he got worse and worse, and he started to get paralyzed down his left-hand side, and he was taken to hospital and had all the tests, all the stuff, and it turned out that he'd got an astrocytoma, which I'd never heard of, but it's a brain tumor. And uh, at that point, I began to think, oh God, where are you? Uh, My husband was a man of faith, a far stronger man of faith than I was at the time. And we had four small children, so you can imagine how I felt. And there was nothing in me that believed that my loving Heavenly Father was going to let him die. But he did. (coughs) He died. Uh, at the age of 39. The oldest was 13 and the youngest was three at that age, at that stage. So I was left with this huge hurdle because during his illness, he'd been prayed and fasted for by church full of people, by endless friends by his readers, because he was an editor of a a Christian uh, teaching material for children. He'd had hands laid on him by people whose names some of you might recognize, who had a healing ministry, who had seen dozens of people get better when they were prayed for. So I was stuck with this huge problem. Why didn't it happen for us? Now we're 20... Six, five years later, I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> and I say to you, I can look you in the eye and honestly say that I believe more now that God heals miraculously than I did then. So how did God get me from this pit of despondency to a position of faith where I really believe in miraculous doings of God, whether they be healings or other sorts of miracles. And the way that he moved me, I I believe only God can do this. He can shift your, your thinking so much, such a huge scope of change in my thinking. And he did it by all sorts of things. First of all, he did it by this. He challenged me. In fact, I remember saying to my counselor, The Bible mocks me on every page, Tim. It tells me in here that those who love him, he cares for and he protects them. We're going to read some of those verses later. And it didn't happen. So I had to get to grips with this. And I had to come to a decision whether life experience is true or whether this is true. And I remember my counselor saying, it's up to you, Andrew. You have to decide whether to believe the word of God or whether you believe your experience. That was a biggie. And that was a tough thing to say to somebody who's grieving. Then I decided I'd get around people who 
had experienced healing. So I started to mix with people who were in that world and had had healings themselves. I began to explore it. I went to seminars. I went to teaching sessions. I went to, I just explored everything as much as I possibly could to try and take on board so that I could answer some of these questions. I had question, 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 question. And I began to pray a lot, as you can imagine. And lots and lots of people were praying for me, which is fantastic. And gradually, 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 I began to see a God that was alive and kicking and was healing. I saw people get better in front of my own eyes when they were prayed for. And you can't deny it when you see it with your own eyes. And then I got prayed for. I've had an ongoing back problem for years and years, ever since I was pregnant with number one. And I've had my back healed three times. First time, by somebody praying for me. And it just got better. Bump, like that. Second time, not so good. Chiropractor. Third time, physiotherapist. But I believe that every one of those was from the hand of my Heavenly Father. So if somebody was ill and asking for prayer, would I tell them not to go to the doctor or the chiropractor or the physiotherapist? No. Would I tell them to stop taking the pills? No. I believe with all my heart that God wants us to be better if we're poorly. And the more opportunity that we give him to make us better, the better. And whether that's medical or miraculous, I just believe God wants to do it. I believe that what he did on the cross was to to restore Eden and bring us to that, to that point where we could move into what he has for us in total in the future. Uh, and I'll just say this before we, we get into looking at the scripture. Most recently I've had a healing. Most people think I am a pain in the butt, but I had a pain in the butt. And it felt like I was sitting on that it felt like a rope <laughs> it was just miserable and all of my pastimes are sitting down ones I'm a needlewoman and I do stained glass and I I do creative stuff and a lot of that you have to sit down I like to read and I couldn't and I was trying to read a book like this you know or like this and you know what it's like really hard and June prayed for me And I woke up the next morning and they'd gone, how about that? That was a couple of months ago. So God's alive and active and doing stuff. And he's done it for me. So I know it's true. But you don't want my stories. What you want is some biblical text. And uh, I'm going to start by just reading something to you from Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. I'm not sure I actually put this one up on the, on the overhead, but you will see some page numbers come up as we go through. And if it feels like a bit of a paper chase through the Bible, I'm not apologizing for it because it's always good to open the Bible and get in and read the verses. Okay. This is what God said to his people. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. 
for I am the Lord who heals you. So immediately, right at the beginning of scripture, God declares himself as the God who heals. And that's very closely linked um, to, if you turn over to Exodus 23, verse 25, and that one definitely is up there, the page number, I think. 82. No, I can't find it. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, yes. Here we go. It starts in the previous... um, That's why I couldn't find it. It was just at the bottom of the previous page. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, not those idols... And his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away disease from you and none will miscarry or be barren in the land. I will give you a full lifespan. His promise to his people. And in it you get a sense of this loving God who just wants to protect. He just wants to put his arms around his people. He just wants to to comfort them and to cosset them in a way. I think that's the word that comes to mind, a sort of this sense of I want to protect you. I want your life to be full. I want your life to be good. I want your life to be healthy. And there's this lovely feeling. And we're going to just look at, I mean, there's lots of examples of miracles in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament. But we're going to look at one of them, and that's uh, the story of Naaman. And it's found in 2 Kings, chapter 5, page 371. I'm probably going to skim read this for the sake of time. Pads is going to tell me how the time is being eaten up because I'm useless timekeeper. So it reads, now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And then we read that his mistress's maid said that she knew a man who would pray for him and his leprosy would go. And he goes to the king and asks permission to go and find this prophet of Israel. And uh, the king of Aram sends him off with a letter of recommendation to the king of Israel... And he takes lots and lots of stuff with him. Talents of silver, shekels, gold, ten sets of clothing, and the lot. And when he gets to the king of Israel, the king of Israel is feeling extremely threatened by this, thinking, well, I can't work miracles. I certainly can't. So he really is um, anxious about it. And uh, Elisha finds out of it, that's the name of the prophet, Elisha finds out about it and says, send him to me. Send him to me. I'll deal with it. I know a God who can take his leprosy away. And so he goes off and finds Elisha. When he gets to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even bother to come out. And poor old thing, he's really put out at this. This was 
the leader of Aram's army and Elisha wouldn't even bother to come out. And he says, you don't even put your hand over where, I, where I'm diseased. And Elisha says, I don't need to, basically. Um, and he tells Naaman what he needs to do. And that is to go to the River Jordan and dip himself in seven times. Naaman is completely aghast at this, just so furious that somebody would ask him, the leader of the king's army, to go and dip in the Jordan. And he says, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And so up come the little servants again and they say, just be reasonable. If you were asked to do some mighty valiant act, you do it. Now you just have to humble yourself and get yourself in this year river. And so he does eventually. And of course, Elisha's right. God heals him through through being dipped in the river. And his response is this. This is really important. Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And that's his moment of faith. Looks at his body, leprosy gone. My goodness, this is a miracle working God. How amazing. And I reckon if there were people getting healed in Coronation Square, there would be a lot of people who would go, who's doing this? Don't you think so? I think there would have been a lot of people there that day thinking, oh my goodness, God's alive and kicking. Things are happening here. Amazing. But the interesting thing is that before he gets healed, he has to change his attitude. And I think that's sometimes the case now. Sometimes we have to change an attitude or a mindset, the way we think about something. God may even require that we do something. I read a story about a a lady who was being prayed for and the lady praying for her just got the word forgiveness come into her head. And so she gently said to to this lady, "Um, is there anybody that's upset you that you might need to forgive? And, And she told the story. There was, of course, somebody that she needed to forgive. And she said, well, I suggest that you just pray a little prayer now and forgive the person who's upset you. So she did that and the lady carried on praying for her and she was partially healed. The next day, she wrote a letter of forgiveness to the lady and as she put put it through the post box, she was healed completely. So sometimes I think Father wants us to just change our attitude, change our mindset, humble ourselves, And then it gives him room for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Okay. We're going to move into the New Testament now. How am I doing for time, Pat? Oh, that's fizzy. (laughs) Sorry. Suddenly struck me. Okay. 
Well, the New Testament is littered with stories of Jesus' healings. In fact, 25% of the Gospels is all, are, are all about the healings of Jesus. 25% is a lot, isn't it? Um, but I'd just like to, you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4, page 968. And uh, we're going to look at verse 23. This tells you something of the scope of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. That's the first thing he did, teaching. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and brought people to him who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, he healed them all. And large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across Jordan followed him. You can imagine, can't you, if all that lot was going on, he must have had a constant entourage after him, wanting to get in on the action. Amazing. So it was an amazing scope. His ministry was really wide. He didn't just teach. He didn't just heal. He looked out for those who were disheartened. He looked out for those that were troubled. He looked out for those that were ailing. And he just had such love. He showed such love for people. And we're going to link that with Mark chapter 1. So if you go over to page 1002... Uh, verse 15. And Jesus says this. This is what he's saying about his ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this was the establishing of the kingdom. Now the kingdom here... It's not a geographical thing like England, like the Kingdom of England or Great Britain. This is, it means the rule and the reign of God. The rule and reign of God established with Jesus in first century Israel. And I'm going to get Martin to pop up a little diagram which may or may not help you. For those of you who like diagrams, you'll love this. For me, I don't relate to diagrams. <laughs> but David, right at the end of last week, brought us to a point where he talked about us living in the spiritual equivalent of the gap between D-Day and V-E-Day. So knowing that the war is won, but actually having it won on VE Day. And we're in that spiritual bit, which up there is labelled... Oh, it is labelled, we live here, sorry. As I, sorry, I should look at the diagram, shouldn't I? But the, the age to come is just going to be wonderful. And the whole of history is moving towards this point when Jesus will have full reign and rule. And it will be 
almost unimaginable, I, I think, to, to our thinking. It will be a time of total fulfilment. There will be no more pain. There will be no more disease. There will be no more attacks of the enemy. There will be no more environmental problems. There will be no more decay in society. Our bodies will be fit and well and renewed. It's going to be wonderful eventually, but we have to wait for the second coming for that. We have to wait for Jesus to come back. And in the interim, we're still fighting wars with the enemy. And uh, there's a verse of scripture that says, I think, did David refer to it last week? The devil is like a roaring lion prowling round looking for whom he may devour. Did he quote that last week? Well, it's there, I promise you. <laughs> and if you're, if you're in a battle over something, that's how it feels. When my husband was so ill and the cancer was gradually taking away more and more of his freedoms, that's how it felt. It felt like the enemy was coming at us like this. It felt like war. And I said to many people, we've lost a battle, but we hadn't lost the war. And I think that's the stage we're in, when we're still fighting lots and lots of skirmishes with the enemy. But we know that eventually the victory is won because Jesus established it on the cross. And so you may find that helpful. I don't know if you do. But we're in this sort of tension. We're in this area of tension in the middle there. And I think we have to be realistic because of it. Not everybody will get healed. Not everybody will get better when we pray for them. Sometimes it's going to be a darned hard work supporting people and loving them through illnesses. I'm going to finish on time. Thank you, Pants. Yeah. So I think there's a, a, a sense of when we get a, a chance, when people are in crisis, particularly with health problems, we get a chance to show the love of God to them and to love them in every way that we possibly can. At the same time as praying that our God will come in with his healing power. We have to do the two in tandem. Are you with me? I had the most wonderful acts of Christian love shown to me when we were at war. People would turn up at my, on my doorstep and say, I've come to do your hoovering. <gasps> you know, or, I've brought you a freezer box full of main meals. What? Not just for today and, ne- and this week, but for a month. Somebody did that for me. Can you imagine? And they were gorgeous. They weren't, you know, fish and chips. They were gorgeous. I can't remember now, but just wonderful stuff. And at the same time as fighting the battle for my husband's health and life, they were loving us as a family. As we live in this tension of fighting the enemy, fighting, fighting, fighting all the time, and loving, 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 if we're not seeing the miracle that we're we're fighting for. Do you understand? It's that sort of tension. 
And I think we have to be very gentle with people who are suffering. I think there have been many mistakes made in our churches over the years, telling people that they don't have enough faith, or that they're not doing this right, or they're not reading enough, or they're not praying enough. It's a nonsense. We've no business to do it. And it's not up to us to decide who God will touch. That's his business. Our job is to open up the possibilities and to make a, a, a spiritual atmosphere where he's happy to work with us and for us. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I feel very strongly about it, having been um, in that situation myself. You can imagine. Okay. So, Jesus went on to commission. And first of all, he commissions his own 12 disciples. And you can read that in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 9, sorry. If you turn to verse 35... Oh, dear. oh, I'm looking at 10, no wonder. Do you know when you're up here, verses move? Did you know that? <laughs> they do, every single time you get up here, verses move. It reads like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, pro- proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and illness. And then he goes on to name the disciples. So he commissions his 12 because he recognizes the huge weight of problems out there. Come on, boys, get on my side. You can do it too. And he still says that to us today. And girls, by the way. Sorry. (laughs) Yes, after all the controversy about the the women bishops today, I should definitely add in the girls. (laughs) And actually, you see that very thing, commissioning them there. You see that playing out in Acts chapter 4, I believe it, no, 5, it's chapter 5, I can't remember if I put this one up there, Martin, did I? I'm sorry if I didn't, I'm not good at this sort of thing, keeping tabs on bits of paper and stuff. Uh, It's not, it's three, yes. I'm so sorry, it is chapter three. Such a twerp. Okay. And this is two of his chaps at it. Peter and John going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And they saw a man who was lame from birth being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. 
Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and he went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. The same reaction that Naaman had. This is God at work. Hey, hallelujah. And he jumped around. And this was two of God's men that he commissioned earlier on, doing the business that he called them to do. But they need more help. And uh, see, he commissions another 72. If you look at Luke chapter 10... Verses 1 and 2, after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the same thing, he says it again, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few and the Lord of the harvest therefore is to send out workers into his harvest field. So first the 12 and then the 72 and guess what, he's saying the same to us today. The fields are ready for harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And he would want to commission us. I really believe this from the bottom of our hearts, my heart, that he wants to commission us to go out and do the same job. That's what we're about. And it's an enormous privilege to be part of what he's doing. We're down to five. We're down to five. Okay, thanks. Okay, so... um, We could pick out lots of other examples, but we haven't got time because I'm down to five minutes. And I'm not a church historian, but there were plenty of people um, who wrote about miracles in the experience of the early church. And I'm going to read you one. This will make you wince or laugh or cry. And... This was written by Augustine of Hippo, and he lived about 400 AD um, in his book, which was called The City of God. He says, even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ. He cites the example of a blind man's sight restored in Milan when he was there. He then describes the cure of a man he was staying with called Innocentus. He was being treated by doctors for fistulae, of which he had a large number intricately intricately, seated in the rectum. Now you're squeezing your buttocks together, aren't you? He had undergone one very painful operation. It was not thought that he would survive another operation. While they were praying for him, he was on the earth, groaning and sobbing, his whole body shaking so that he couldn't speak. The dreaded day for the next operation came. The surgeons arrived. The frightful instruments are produced. The part is bared. The surgeon, with knife in hand, eagerly looks for the sinus that's to be cut. He searches for it with his eyes. He feels for it with his finger. He applies every kind of scrutiny. He found a perfectly healed wound. No words of mine can describe the joy and praise and thanksgiving to the merciful and almighty God, which was poured from the lips of all with tears and gladness. Let the scene be imagined rather than described. (laughs) Fantastic, isn't it? So it's there in the early church. And it's here today. 
There are people being healed today, miraculously, by our loving Heavenly Father all around the world. There are people being healed in Reading today. I think that's wonderful, and as it should be. I've got time for one quick story. Yeah. I help from time to time at the prayer cafe at Greyfriars, which is once a month. And we see people healed there. It's so encouraging. It's just so encouraging. And I'm on the welcoming team, which means I get to pray with people when they come in for their cake and coffee. If, if they want it, they don't have to be prayed for. And in walked a lady that I hadn't seen for about ooh, ooh, 30 years. Our children were at primary school together. And I went, oh, Leslie, I haven't seen you for years. How are you? And she said, not well. <laughs> Poor love. She was in such pain. And it, I discovered she now lives in Norwich. And she'd come back to Reading for the weekend to visit her children, some, some of her children who still lived here. And um, she thought she just saw somebody outside Greyfriars and thought, oh, I'll go in. And she didn't know I would be there, obviously. So we chatted and she told me she had pain in every joint and all down her back and up her neck and... She was just in such pain. She was walking on a stick and it was just awful to see her like that. Dreadful. She's my age, obviously. So I just said, well, are you happy if I pray for you, Leslie? And she said, yes. So a couple of us prayed for her, which was lovely. And uh, at the end of prayer cafe, off she toddled and I gave her a hug and that was that. And I thought I wasn't going to hear any more about it. And then about three days later, I had a little thing pop up on my iPad saying I got a message on Facebook from Leslie. So uh, I went and onto Facebook and had a look. And this little voice, this little sentence read, um, Andrea just wanted, hoped that I'd get in touch with you somehow to tell you that since you prayed for me on Saturday, I've had no pain anywhere except my hands and you didn't pray for my hands. <laughs> Sorry, Lord. Isn't that amazing? That wasn't me. That wasn't me. Nothing to do with me. It was God doing his business. And so I typed one back saying, get somebody in Norwich to pray for your hands. <laughs> so it's still happening. And I could go on, on and on. And there's books and anecdotes and all sorts of things. If you want more proof, there's loads. And there's one book that I haven't read, but it's actually recommended, at the, I noticed, at the end of this session. Uh, something to do with a, a dancer, isn't dancer it? Off dancer off her feet. Thank you. Okay. Hope I haven't gone on too long. 